This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our product should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to episode four of the Wild Common Podcast. This is Andy Barton, the host and the founder of Wild Common Agave Spirits. And today's guest is Jody McDonald, a friend of mine, a photographer, and an adventurer and a world traveler. She's spent the formative years of her life in Saudi Arabia, of all places, before sailing around the world multiple times, documenting kiteboarding, sailing, surfing, paragliding, and never ceases to amaze me at the images she brings home. From train hopping in the Sahara Desert to paragliding in the Himalayas at 17,000 feet, she's passionate about stepping off the beaten path in pursuit of documenting issues that blend storytelling, adventure, and social change in the hopes of promoting the preservation of wild places. She's worked on prominent ad campaigns for Disney, HP, Ford, Leica, the list goes on, National Geographic. Jody and I talk remotely on the 27th of March, 2020, from our uh, respective offices here in quarantine. We catch up, talk story, and I hope you enjoy the show. Jody McDonald, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So you're in Sun Valley right now? I am. Oh, I can't talk about quarantine. <laughs> you can talk about it. It's our reality. Uh, quarantine in my house right now, yes. All right. I'm in, I'm in Jackson Hole. Um, I, I wanted to just launch into a story about sort of, um, I, there was an image you posted in 2017. I don't know if it was August or September or something. You posted it and I, we get like this, like scroll fatigue or social media fatigue where we're just like rolling and rolling and rolling. You see something beautiful, you tap on it. But I actually like screenshotted it, texted you directly and was like, I want a print of this. And and this is an elephant named Rajan. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Rajan, yeah. Rajan. And uh, on, the, on the back of this print, which now hangs in my bedroom, which I absolutely love, um, there's this 60-year-old elephant who's lumbering through this forest, and it's just this otherworldly image. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to jump into that story. Can you tell me how that came about? Yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty cool story. Um, I was sailing around the world at the time and I happened to watch this Hollywood movie um, while I was on the catamaran because we watched a lot of movies and read a lot of books. But, um, but I watched this, Holly this Hollywood movie called The Fall and it had this elephant swimming in this like tropical blue water. And I don't know why, but when I saw it, I was like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, does this actually exist or is this like some Hollywood, you know, you know, prop or something. Um, but I, I don't know why, but it really made me want to like Google search it and investigate it more. And I found out that um, the, the elephant um, really did exist and it was real footage um, and that he lived in the Andaman islands in India and I think we were going to be sailing there in the next, uh, I don't know, three to six months or something. So 
when we got to India, I was like, I'm, I'm going to get off the boat for a bit and see if I can find this, this ocean swimming elephant. And, um, I ended up finding him. And when I found out a little bit more about him, I became really intrigued with his story. And the backstory of Rajan was he was brought to the Andaman Islands in the 1970s with a group of nine other elephants. Um, and they were brutally forced to learn how to swim in salt water. So elephants love fresh water, but they don't like salt water, which is why you never see elephants in the ocean. Um, and so they were, they were learned to swim in the ocean because they were logging uh, from that photograph. You can see these like huge, enormous trees, but they were logging those trees on the Andaman Islands and they needed a way to get the log from the island to the barges. So they trained these elephants to basically drag swim with these large trees and logs and bring them to the barges. And then once the islands were done being logged, that, that group of elephants, the 10 elephants would swim to the next island because they had no way to kind of transport them. Um, and, and apparently they'd swim like in a line up to like a couple miles to the next island. And then uh, logging became banned in the Andamans in the, um, I think it was the late 90s or early 2000s. And um, the elephants were kind of out of a job. And it's a little, it became a little unclear exactly what happened. But all the other ones, um, I don't know if over the period of the next 10 years or whatever, ended up dying off. And Rajan was the last one of this group to survive that was left. And he was living with his caretaker, which they call him the hoots in India, uh, elephant caretaker. And um, he was just kind of living his retirement days out on this, on this island in the jungle. And he'd, he'd grown to love swimming in the water. So he'd just kind of swim in the ocean when he felt like swimming and would hang out in the jungle all day. And it was just him and his caretaker. And it was just such an incredible experience for me because watching the bond between his mahout and um himself was just it was i don't know i it was like nothing i've ever seen before it was like a mother and child um it was really really profound and, and incredibly special to witness and i followed them around for i think every day for two weeks and i couldn't really communicate very well with the mahout but we kind of just did our sign language thing and um, he kind of, he just got used to me being around, but it was, um, it was just such an incredible, I thought it was an incredible story. It really, really moved me. And um, I ended up meeting a BBC producer um, on the Island and then they ran the story. And I think probably to this day, it's one of, it's one of my most popular stories for sure. Yeah, I mean, I looked um, through the the comments on one image you have. Um, I think it was well before 2017. Of it's an underwater shot that you took with a water housing of Rajan swimming, and it's got some whatever it is, 250 comments, and I don't know how many likes. Um, there's just a real profound sort of response to it. Yeah, I mean, people. I mean, I get mess. Still get messages. Um, 
about Rajan all the time. I mean, he, unfortunately, um, somebody messaged me from, from the island he lived on in 2016 and told me that he uh, finally passed away, which was really sad because it was actually going to go back and uh, photograph him again. Um, but yeah, I get messages all the time. I think people think like I get, I hear a lot that people think that it looks like he's smiling underwater, that it's really peaceful. Um, I don't know. There's just something about it that, uh, that story or, you know, what Rajan represents that people, um, feel connected to and moved by. And I know sounds, I was. Yeah. It sounds like you, know, you were also sort of not just um, impressed by the connection between the two of them, but almost impressed by the emotional intelligence of the animal himself, huh? Yeah, I mean, elephants, I've I've spent quite a bit of time with uh, Asian elephants even since that project, I think because it's really inspired me, but um, I, I love being around large animals that are very intelligent, and um, elephants just kind of blow me away. Every time I'm around them, I'm just I'm overwhelmed by how smart they are and how, like how much we underestimate them. They're so much smarter than we know. And it's like just watching them interact and, and you can tell that they're like, they have these emotions and that they think a lot and it's just, it's incredibly fascinating. And then another, um, image you posted just before the shot of Rajan that I remember really reacting to, um, was a shot of the full solar eclipse in August of 2017. And I remember you saying something along the lines of that, you know, it blew you away or it exceeded all of your expectations. Um, wh- where were you for that? I was actually here. We were right on the path, like Sun Valley is, was right on the path of um, total eclipse. Um and and I think was Jackson just a little bit off of it, maybe. Jackson? No, no, we were right in it. I was. Uh, oh, you were right in it. Too. Yeah, I was working a job that day, um, shooting video with Keith Ledzinski, another friend of ours. And so my job, of course, is to hold the video camera sturdy or steady. And as this eclipse like starts, it uh, was significantly more um, overwhelming than I thought it was going to be, and I started crying. <laughs> I couldn't control, (laughs) I couldn't control myself. Literally, I'm just like holding this camera on my chest with tears dripping onto it. And the camera's kind of shaking. My job is to hold it still. Um, You had one job. (laughs) It it was, it was overwhelming for sure. I mean, uh, yeah, it blew me away. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's, it's something that you, I think, well, you can't have expectation for it, but um, because you've never experienced it before, but it's, it was so much more powerful than you could ever anticipate. Um, and then, and then it ma- immediately made me think back to, I mean, how, when it had happened before, which was how many hundreds or how, do you remember how, like when the, the last time it happened was? No, I don't, I don't know the stats on all that. Um, yeah, me neither, but it made me think back to what people must have thought then when it happened, because you really, you really do get the sense that, I mean, it's, it's beautiful because we know what's happening, but if you didn't know what was going on, you would almost think it was the end of the world. For sure. And I think for me, the, the closest thing that it's similar to is just looking up at the stars and being completely overwhelmed 
and recognizing right. just how small we are and that we're, we really are a part of something larger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like and and the photo you, we can comprehend the photo you posted yeah. is incredible. Um, I'll, I'll link to it in the, in the show notes of this episode. Um, so let's go back to the beginning. I, I, you know, when we met, it was in Washington, D.C., um, at the National Geographic headquarters. And I was introduced to you as this adventure photographer. Um, how did that all start? Did, you know, you, you took an elective at school at some point, or you were handed a camera, or, or what was the seed that grew into this this beast that consumed so much of your life? Yeah, I mean, I think it really goes back to... Um, when I was really young, um, at the age of two, um, my dad got a job in Saudi Arabia. And so he relocated our family there. And one of the, one of the perks that they, one of the many perks that they kind of, um, gave the families that moved there was paid vacations. And my parents had never traveled anywhere. So, they were like, wow, we're going to take full advantage of this. And so every school break, holiday, summer vacation, you name it, my parents were like, we're, we're going to travel somewhere. And, you know, and they had never been anywhere. So I think, you know, for, I lived, I lived in Saudi for 10, 13 years. And probably most of those every school break or holiday, we went somewhere. So my whole childhood was like traveling and traveling to exotic locations. And I think that really instilled in me at a young age, um, just like how amazing the world is and how much there is to see and experience. And I remember like, I just, I think like, I just wanted to be Indiana Jones. You know, I just, I started dreaming about having these adventures and, going in archaeological digs and stuff like that. And I mean, I think that's where it really started. And I combine that with my two loves in school were always sports and art. And so by the time I got to university, I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to take in university. Um, and then I found this program at a university in Canada that you could get a bachelor's in outdoor recreation. And I was like, that's it. You know, that's, that's all I want to do. That's what I really want to do. I want to learn to be an outdoor guide. I want to just do adventures or I want to own a business, but I think mostly I just wanted to be an outdoor like mountain guide or a guide. Um, And then during, during university, while I was doing my bachelor's in outdoor rec, I took um, a photography elective, and for me, that was like it was like light bulb or uh, light, lightning striking. You know, huge light bulb going off, and I was just like, "Oh my god, this is this is it!" Like I can combine my love of adventure and art by taking a camera with me on all my adventures. And you had this foundation, having grown up sort of off the beaten path, traveling that, you know. Other, other places aren't, quote, dangerous or evil, that in fact, you can, you know, travel with an open mind. And for the most part, you'll be welcomed in so long as you're respectful. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think that was the extra bonus of me uh, kind of growing up in the Middle East, um, because the perception of it is 
yeah, so harsh. Um, but it also, I think growing up there really teaches you to be super respectful, but it also, it also kind of proved to me that, um, you know, people have a lot of misconceptions about a lot of places. And so I think it automatically uh, made me a lot less um, fearful of going off the beaten path. More, you more know, curious, going, less judgmental. Yeah, exactly. And just, and just knowing that, you know, so many people um, would react so badly when they would hear about Saudi Arabia. And I'd always ask them, like, have you been there? And they would all say no. And I was like, wow, I love it. <laughs> you know, like, I think it's amazing. Um, and I think, yeah, that really, that really helped me, has helped me as I've, you know, continued like traveling around the world and sailing around the world, particularly because when we were sailing, we were specialized in remote locations, like getting way off the beaten path. And, and, um, I was always really excited to explore those places rather than scared to. And I think growing up in Saudi really helped me with that. And so how do you go from the Middle East, the desert, to uh, the Great White North in Canada to a sailboat? I mean, what's that transition all about? Um, well, that transition was um, after university. Um, I became an outdoor guide for a while. and um, what, what type of I guide? Think, oh, I, I, was, um, I was a guide... Uh, like a mountain bike guide and a kayak guide and a raft guide in Alaska. Um, I did a whole bunch of different um, guiding in uh, the coast mountains in BC. And then I would spend my summers up in uh, Alaska doing remote um, raft guiding. And I think that I started to give into societal pressures a little bit. Um, I was starting to get a little bit bored with guiding and I decided, oh, you know, maybe, maybe I should go to the city and try, like, getting a real job and just seeing what that's like. Um, this does not end so well. I, <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't end well, but you kind of, I, I needed to go find out, though. Like, you know, or else I think I'd always wonder what it was like. Um, so I moved to Vancouver, Canada, and I ended up getting... Um, a photo editing job at uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op, which is Canada's equivalent to REI. Sure, one of the one of the biggest sort of outdoor stores or shops, yeah. and and that's norm, an yeah. enormous amount of responsibility for you, as well as education in uh, imagery and usage, and you know the whole business component too. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it, it ended up being a really um, great learning experience for me being on that side of um, the photography world. Just but did you, kind of being, did you feel like an outdoor cat looking out the window at the birds? Like, did you fit in there? Or? Oh, well, I fit in because everybody who worked there was very outdoorsy. Um, but being in the city, I don't fit. I don't think it really fit any of us that worked there very well. Um, because I kind of felt like, you know, everybody who was working there kind of did the same thing I did. They were kind of giving into societal pressures and, and like coming to the city to get a real job, but we didn't want to work like in a normal job. So this was kind of like that 
that a job where you felt you were still connected to the outdoors, but a little bit more responsible, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think in one sense you feel like you fit in a bit just because you have similar interests with the people you're working with, but on the flip side, you keep asking, well, I kept asking myself like, what the hell am I doing here in the, in the city? You know? Um, so, so yeah. So what, what prompted you to then pull the ripcord and say, you know, let's get out of here. This isn't for me. Well, I started uh, dating a, a bush pilot in Alaska and a surf surfing guide in Mexico. He was, he did, um, he was a bush pilot in Alaska and then he did surf, um, expedition stuff in Mexico. And he, so he was not kind of based out of anywhere and he traveled around a ton. And so he'd come visit me, um, in Vancouver and he just, he just kept saying like, man, this, this place is sucking your soul. And I had, by this time, I'd already been working there for a few years and I wasn't really learning anything anymore. It wasn't, the job wasn't challenging me. And so he, like he, I mean, I knew, I guess he verbalized exactly what I was feeling. Right. I said, so, but he was really kind of pushing me. He just kept saying like, you know, we should get out of here. Uh, you know, you quit your job. We'll do a huge, like, three months road trip and you can just take time to figure out what you want to do. And so I was like, you know what, that's, that's exactly what I need to do. You know, I need to just like quit my job and force the decision and then figure it out. You know? Um, so, so I did, I quit my job. So you took the leap. I took the leap and, um, cause yeah, I just had had enough and I, I definitely needed to change. And so I took the leap. I um, quit the, quit my job and got rid of my apartment and packed up all my stuff. And then it was my last day of work. Um, and I think at it was around noon, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who said that he had died that morning in a paragliding accident. Oh God, your boyfriend? Yeah. Um, and I was, yeah, I mean, it kind of, kind of changed everything for me because I was, we were just getting ready to go on this, you know, three or four months or six months uh, road trip and live out of, live, live out of the van and like surf and paraglide and stuff like that. And then, yeah, it just instantly all changed. And, and you're quitting. This is your last day of work. It's my last day of work. I was only going to work till like two o'clock. I remember. And I got a phone call at like noon and it, yeah, so it all just changed really, really quick. And um, and then I I really didn't know what to do. I mean, I, my, my family and my friends were pressuring me to, you know, get my apartment back, get my job back, and just, like, have the security of that. But I did, for me, I just, I couldn't, to me, that was moving backwards, and I couldn't move backwards. I wanted to keep moving forward. And I wanted to be around people who didn't know about, about him dying because people really, they could, they, they treat you differently. They, they feel really bad for you. Every time you look, you know, they look at you. Um, they may not say anything, but they're kind of like giving you that look. And, and I felt like that was going to make the grieving process a lot harder for me. Um, 
So I just decided to do the road trip that we were going to do, but I just did it on my own. And so I spent the next, uh, I think three months, like living out of my van and just kind of surfing. And I went down the West coast, um, and just met people along the way and just like took the time to kind of grieve. Well, that's incredibly, then, incredibly courageous given the, the circumstances. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I don't know if it's courageous. It just kind of felt like the best option for me, um, during that time. And I was, I was so grateful I did it because it was a really powerful time in my life for sure. Um, and then, um, I ended up, I didn't really know, you know, I was just kind of wandering around and then I had some paragliding friends here in Sun Valley. And so I decided to come to Sun Valley and, um, hang out with them. And I stayed, I ended up staying here for quite a while. And then I got an offer, um, from my old business partner, um, who I, who I'd met here. And he said, well, why don't you, you know, I have, I'm doing charters in the South Pacific. Um, why don't you come and try it out and see what you like, see what you think. And I was like, done. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to like it, but I can always come back. You know, Wait, I can always get a you job hadn't, somewhere. You hadn't sailed before? No, I had sailed once before, only once before from a university friend. Um, we, he, his, his dad had a sailboat in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, we flew down there one spring break and some friends and I, um, and did a two week sailing trip. And it was the worst experience probably of my life. Um, we got stuck in a pretty much a 10 day storm and I was violently seasick through the whole thing. And I remember when I got off that boat, I said, okay, I've tried sailing and it sucks. I'm never going to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, been there, done that. Confirmed. Really? It's really not for me. <laughs> um, so that was my only sailing experience. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was horrible. Okay. But I, um, also when I was introduced to you, somebody was like, this is Jody. She sailed around the world for years. <laughs> That's how right. you were like introduced. Yeah. yeah well, I, yeah, I don't know who introduced me, but, um, it's true. I ended up doing that. Um, so, you, so then, fly, you fly to the South Pacific, you get on a boat, and was it literally yours? My boat? No, no, this this sailing mission that you you sailed around the world. I mean, you, you were oh, on this so, boat. No, so I got invited to do this, uh, go on this boat who, with this guy who was doing um, charters in the South Pacific. And so I was like, yeah, I'll, uh, you know what? It sounds like a really cool adventure my last experience sailing was horrible, but you know, this, I, you know, you don't get asked that very often. And I'm, I'm a firm believer that you, you always take advantage of these. Like when you get offers like this, you don't pass them up, right? You take advantage of it. Um, Cause they're not something like you can, you know, I was like, I may, may never have this opportunity again, but I can always come back home if it, if it sucks, you know, but I can't always, like go sailing in the South Pacific. So 
Um, and I love the idea of the exploration of it, like exploring the South Pacific by boat sounded really, really kick ass to me. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go try it out. For sure. Warm weather, um, clear water. Yeah. And the South Pacific, you know, is a place I'd never been to, um, all islands. It sounded, it sounded really intriguing. Um, so anyway, yeah, I did it. I flew out to New Zealand, um, spent like three months. It was like a cyclone season. So his boat was on the hard in New Zealand. So spent three months doing work in the boat yard on it before, before um, putting it in the water and starting the season. And on our trip from New Zealand to Fiji, um, it was really bad. And then we needed to get from, no, we went to New Zealand to Vanuatu and then we needed to get to Vanuatu to Fiji and we were sailing, um, against the trades and it, I did a Ted talk on this, um, experience cause it was literally the worst 10 days of my life. <laughs> just seasick um, and just gnarly. No, we, well, we got stuck under the intertropical convergence zone, which is this horrible, this band of like horrible weather. It's like torrential rain and lightning and thunderstorms and it never eases up. Um, and we were going, we were beating, which means you're going sailing into the wind. Um, and we, I think like over, like every day you were just, beating which means you're just kind of slamming because you're going into the wind you're just basically that's why they call it beating because you're getting a beating but the boat just started to slowly disintegrate and um we were getting rogue waves that were like 30 feet high that we we, we had forty thousand dollars worth of damage um the captain got malaria was delusional um none of us ate for 10 days um and we plotted, the first mate and I plotted to like ram the boat into the reef so we could get, hopefully get rescued. Oh. Um, yeah. We, we <laughs> There's mutiny. There's mutiny. Yeah. We, yeah. We <laughs> wanted, well, the, well, the captain became delusional. So we, wasn't a mutiny. <laughs> the, the captain wasn't in his right mind. Yeah. Um, I, I remember, I remember one, like you couldn't sleep because it was like leaking all on the inside. And when we took turns on watches, you were like, you know, it had to be clipped in because these rogue waves and the waves were, would kind of like wipe you out when you were at the helm. And we'd be like standing in waist deep water um, in the cockpit the whole time. So it was like leaking all on the inside. I mean, it was, we almost lost the mast. Um, it was, it was crazy. It was, and that was like my, within my first 15 days of sailing. Right. Welcome back. And, and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, this, <laughs> this is really, this really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and then <clears throat> I don't know why, I really don't know why. Cause we pulled into Fiji Well, we limped, we limped into Fiji. I didn't even think we were going to make it. Um, but we limped into Fiji and, um, I remember, I remember like getting off the boat as fast as humanly possible and like checking myself into a hotel. And I was, 
I, I think like, I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm never getting on that thing again. Yeah, like, round, I'm round done. two. I also hated it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, I don't know what, I don't really know what happened, but like after a couple of days of just like being off of it, I just felt like I couldn't quit. I don't know. I just, I thought if I quit after the short amount of time that I would regret it. And so I was like, I just, I need to stick it out longer. And, and then I ended up failing for 10 years, um, which is insane because I was pretty much seasick most of those 10 years. Um, but, but we ended up, um, selling that boat a couple years later, we did, we did charters in the South Pacific, which I thought was horrible. And, um, so I was, I, I said to my partner, Gavin at the time, the, the like, charter oh, part itself was horrible. Yeah. The charter part yeah. was, was horrible. It is the worst business plan idea ever in, in my opinion. Um, and I, I said, let's, I can't do this anymore. And so he was like, okay, well, let's sell the boat and we'll figure out something else to do. And I was like, yeah, okay. That sounds good to me. Cause I can't do this anymore. So we, um, we took the boat to Thailand and um, lived in Thailand while we did work on, on her to get her ready to sell. And so we lived in Thailand for like a year and then finally sold her. And then we, we didn't really know what to do next. So then we came up with this idea to <laughs> create another <laughs> uh, business, sailing business, but with a catamaran. Um, but the idea was to do five-year world kiteboarding expeditions by catamaran. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, we put that, we took, we gave ourselves a year to put that business model together and whatever little money we had left to give it a try. And, um, yeah, so we ended up creating that business. And, and some of and, the, some of the experiences you had, I mean, obviously you've documented, most of this time with a camera, did you know that this was laying the foundation for the portfolio of work that you would share with the world? No, I really didn't. I mean, I, 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 when I was doing that charter business, I was taking pictures, but I, I was working so much on the boat that, um, I wasn't, I wasn't really serious about the photos, but when we started the catamaran, business, um, I decided that I really wanted to start taking photography really seriously. So I had been on the, I've been, you know, I'd experienced the photo editor side, but I, when I was looking at those pictures as a photo editor, I was always thinking to myself, like, I don't want to be in here. I want to be out in these places, um, taking these pictures. I don't want to be the one editing them in the office. And so when I started sailing on the catamaran, when I started sailing, I was like, this is my opportunity to really, to really dive in and really get better at my photography. And so this was another aha moment, similar to when you walked out of your previous job um, as a photo editor, this is now you stepping out again, saying, this doesn't feel right. I'm going to make a shift. Let's adjust. Yeah. And so I just, with with the catamaran business we'd made a list of all the things we hated about the charter business and all the things we liked about 
sailing. And a big one for me, it wasn't actually the sailing, it was the exploration that I really, really loved. Um, and then combine that again with really wanting, I was like, now I want to do my photography seriously. That, that would be the ideal scenario for me is exploration and, and photography. <clears throat> and so we created this business that kind of allowed, that allowed me to start to pursue that. Um, and so that's what I did. I was like, this is it. This is the time to really get serious. And so I just, I just worked from then on, on trying to get better, you know, take as many pictures as I I could. And we were really fortunate because we had um, a lot of professional athletes come out on board. So it was a, it was a really great opportunity for me to work with um, professional athletes um, and just keep getting better with my photography skills. And and Um, you started submitting these images to magazines, to National Geographic, to uh, various travel magazines or, or what, what did that next step look like where you decided, okay. Yeah. So, so because I was in these kind of, well, I was in these really remote locations with, uh, professional athletes. Um, I started submitting them to, to different magazines. So whether it be like surfing magazines or kiteboarding magazines or, um, but yeah, I just started submitting. And I think because I was in these really unique locations and I was doing a lot of photography too from the top of the mast so I was getting that like aerial view that well now would be a drone view but you know we were in these really crazy places and I was getting this aerial view that nobody had really seen before we ended up also putting um, a payout winch in our dinghy that allowed us to tow our with a paraglider, we could tow up to about 3,000 feet and then release the cable and fly around. Um, and so I would do that and then take pictures, uh, aerial pictures of these places too. So the editors were, were getting like these photos of places that, you know, they hadn't really seen before or athletes doing stuff in these places that they hadn't seen before. So I think that was, it wasn't necessarily that the photography was good. I think it was also the bigger component was that it was just stuff that they weren't seeing. So I think that's when my work started to get published. And then it seems like, I mean, you, you know, your, your accomplishments athletically, as well as your adventurous spirit, you you clearly have a, a super strong worth that work ethic and you're pushing yourself. Were you hard on yourself during those times? I mean, uh, are you, are you yeah, like a no, perfectionist I'm, or? I, I, I'm a perfectionist. Yeah, are for you? sure. I, I, it, with my art. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm very, very critical of my own work. I mean, I'll, but I, I try not to be critical in a, like a super negative way. I try to be critical in a, in a way that just I'm trying to be better all the time. And I think that's, I think it's really important and really helpful, um, with being a photographer and, and, and kind of just always trying to improve your work. Um, I just think being super critical is really important to that process. I also see you like, don't like, I don't see ego tied up in, um, like you compliment people often and it feels super, super genuine. Like you, you aren't as critical about other people's work, at least from my opinion, um, from what I've seen, but it seems like you have, uh, sort of a need to always push and to always be better with your own work, which I think is healthy. It's going to, 
continue to keep you on the path. Yeah, I mean, I think with regards to other people's work, I mean, I think if you're if you would ask me to like break down the, a photograph and critique it, um, I could I would definitely do that. But I think what I I really praise people on is just going out there and going for it because I think that's like ninety percent of the battle. You know, anybody who's making the effort and going for it, I think, you know, encouragement and praise is really important, <laughs> you know, because I think it's, yeah, I mean, that's, we got to get other people psyched on, on pursuing what they really want to do and their passions. you know, I think it's so great to see. A hundred percent. And I'm, I'm also kind of like, I want to like delete work and throw it out and, you know, I, I feel like good is the enemy of great sometimes. You know, a business author at some point named Jim Collins said that, and I, that resonates with me, right? Where it's like, cool, you've done that. Don't rest on your laurels. Move on. What are you going to do next? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, the hard thing about perfectionism is that you you can end up spending too much time on something. And, and I think that's where I'm always struggling on is it I struggle with is like, you know, teaching myself, okay, you know, th- I need to stop. I need to move on to something else. I need to, you know, and trying to find that balance. It's always about the balance, right? Yeah. So done is better than perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, but done and perfect is, is ideal, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, I think that's the beauty of photography, though. In my mind, it, it can never be perfect, and I, I like that because it just keeps me it keeps me going and it keeps me passionate about you know trying to get better all the time. Knowing that there's another image that you, you can't foresee that you need to go out and find in the world. It's sort of a uh, a hunt always. Yeah, it's this perpetual challenge, and I, I love being challenged. So it's I yeah, I just I love the process of it. And so I'm sure you get messaged all the time and, and people always ask, um, you know, how, how do you get a foot in the door these days? Or how do you become a photographer for uh, X and Y magazine or online or something? You know, what what advice do you have? You, you talk briefly about sort of um, pursuing your passions, but what do you tell people that, that ask for tips? Yeah, um, I would... I, I tell people that this this absolutely has to be, I think particularly nowadays, it has to be absolute passion. Like I, I, I think about photography probably all day long and it's the one thing that I, I like want to do all the time. Not that I'm doing it all the time, but if I'm not doing it, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about stories of pitching trips, all this stuff. And it's, I'm willing to basically do anything to keep pursuing my photography. And I think that's, if you're not that into photography, I mean, if you just like it as a hobby and it makes you happy, that's not enough nowadays. I think you, you really need to have that fire. You need to be willing to, I tell people, you need to be willing to like sleep in a car, you know, to do it. You need to you know, be willing to share an apartment with 10 people if you're starting out to save money so that you can make it happen. You need to be willing to, if you live in San Francisco and you've got all these bills, you need to move somewhere else where, you know, you can pay less rent and uh, so you don't, 
you know, you're not caught up in having to have four jobs to make all your bill payments. You know, you have to be willing to sacrifice a lot um, to make it happen. And because I want to do photography so badly, none of that is much of a sacrifice to me. You know, I mean, even now, I mean, if, if somebody said, you know, oh, you want to go do this trip in Mongolia, but first you need to do this and this and this, I'd be like 100%, like without question, you know, it, it's, and I think that's what, that's what it takes. Yeah. Um, and if you don't, and if you don't have that passion, you'll burn out and you won't last. Well, you, you need, you need that fuel to really push you through the ups and downs of this career. And uh, there's a ton of downs, as you know, uh, it's, a, it's a constant up and down cycle. And if you're not really passionate about it, you're just going to, you're just going to give up. And um, you, you can't like the, the whole, the big part of this job is, or a career as a photographer is persistence. So you need that, you need that fuel, that drive to keep you persisting. A hundred percent, especially the, the roller coaster that is not knowing when you're going to get paid, not knowing if the phone's going to ring. I mean, that right. never, that never goes away. Right. And, and you got to kind of, I mean, not that you kind of like it, but it's just, you kind of have to accept it as part of the program. Leap, and, leap the program. and the net will appear. You have to commit to knowing that yeah. and, uh, opportunities and you're doing will come that, up. That's right. And you're doing that all the time. Like <laughs> that never stops. For years. Um, <laughs> Yeah, for, <laughs> forever. <laughs> yeah. So normally every winter we see each other in Washington, D.C. This year I didn't get a chance to see you. Uh, this is a annual photography summit, photography seminar. Um, and you had a couple of your own personal challenges going on. Are you willing to open up a little bit about that? Yeah, I had a uh, – last fall was – well, yeah, last year – Last year was pretty crazy for me. Um, in the, it started, I would say, I don't know. I mean, I started, I started having some like something going on with my health a little bit, and and I would say, in the last spring, and it was, I, I don't know. I had something. I my abdomen didn't feel that great, and so I went in, and they did an ultrasound, and they were like, oh, you just have some ovarian cysts, and you know all women get them. Not all women know they have, most women don't even know they have them because they just <clears throat> kind of disappear on their own after a couple months. So they were like, yeah, you've got some ovarian cysts growing, but don't worry. They'll just kind of go away on their own. Um, and I was like, okay. And then, um, I was actually train hopping in Canada in the summertime, um, doing some research for a photo project. And I fell off the train onto the rail line and broke my tailbone. Um, so that, that was kind of, that set off my, my summer of, <laughs> I don't know, uh, injury and illness. And then um, uh, a couple months later, my abdomen thing started getting worse. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know. These ovarian cysts, like they're not going away. Something's going on. It's getting worse. And then um, I went to the doctor and they just kept telling me, oh, yeah, it's just like a very insist. And I was like, no, this is like something's going on. Something, they're not going away. They found a tumor in my abdomen, um, 
like a five inch tumor. And yeah, I mean, everything changed really, really quick because the OBGYN that I was seeing said, basically told me I had like ovarian cancer and I probably had, you know, a couple years to live and that I'd have to start going into chemo and the works like within, like I walked into that office thinking I just had like ovarian cyst problems and like 20 minutes later walked out thinking like I had a year left to live. And so, yeah, life got, I don't know, just got crazy really, really fast. And then, um, so how did, I mean, how do you, how do you take that? You know, I, everything changes. Yeah. I mean, everything changes. I mean, you just, I don't, I don't know how else to explain it other than like my focus, your focus becomes very narrow. Um, you realize very quickly, like how much stuff in our daily lives is just so irrelevant and insignificant. Um, and it, it, it kind of makes you focus on the really important things, you know, um, or it just in thinking about them and thinking like, Oh my God, if you only have, like, if I only have that much time left, like, wow, like, what am I going to do with it? You know, um, like just trying to try your, I mean, your brain goes through all that stuff or mine did and just trying to, I don't know, make sense of it too, because you're kind of, you can't believe it. You know, is this is and you're, that, and you're waiting on news, right? Like there's this drama unfolding that, you yeah. don't know the answer. Like you don't have yeah. answers. And, You're and, in limbo. And in, and in retrospect, that is the absolutely worst part is when you, when you're in that waiting period and you don't know anything. And so, yeah, the, when I, I went to see the, the surgeon, like a day later, like they kind of like, you get a, put on a really fast track when you, when you've got a tumor, um, they want to get you into surgery really quick. Um, so like I saw the surgeon the next day and he just kind of was like, yeah, we don't, we don't really know till we get it out. But he said, once we, <clears throat> we're going to do the pathology on it in the middle of the operation. And he said, within a minute, we know if it's benign or malignant. And then um, based on, so he said, if it's, if it's benign, we'll just like sew you up. And you'll be done. But if it's malignant, we're going to have to remove a whole bunch of stuff um, to pre- kind of prevent the spread, right? So when you're going into the operation, I was like, like, I didn't even know. You don't even know how you're going to come out, which is which is a horrible feeling. Were you uh, al- alone going in? Did you have a partner with you? No. So yeah. So I had I had my fam like my family fly in, and they were here. I had like I had a a bunch of my family around here, um, with me. And then, um, so I go, I go in for the operation and I come out and the doctor's surgeon says to me, um, we, we can't figure out if it's benign or malignant. He said, we have to send it to Harvard. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, so you're telling me like, now I have to wait again. And then they it's malignant. You got to like open me back up and go back in. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> he's like, it'll take about two weeks. Oh. 
And then, so I was in the hospital and like six hours out of surgery, I had internal bleeding. So they had to rush me back in and open me up anyway and fix my internal bleeding. And then again, I was in like this limbo of waiting again for like two weeks to wait to hear if I like have cancer or not. And then finally he calls me and he's like, well, I got the results. It's benign. You're good to go. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, and he, and then he said, you know, your tumor is one of it's, he says, I've never seen it in my life before. It's one of eight reported cases in the world, the tumor that you grew. Um, and he's like, it's totally, it's totally benign. Um, but yeah, and then and so just like that, it's kind of like, kind of like everything was back to normal, other than you know having a huge incision in my abdomen. But and a, um, and a completely renewed perspective on your life and your health and vitality. I mean, how do you walk away from that? Yeah. What, what did you? Well, it was really interesting. It reminded me a lot of when my boyfriend died in the paragliding accident. Um, I, I think I, I always say that his, his name was Chris and I always say that Chris's death, and I don't mean this in a, in a disrespectful way, but it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I think, I think any time that you're fundamentally reminded of how precious our time is on earth and how short it is. And, you know, like it, it's a, it's a, it's something that I felt like you can't, like you hear it all the time, but you don't really know it until you've kind of like experienced the death or a real significant experience like that. And then, so, and that's what I, I meant by Chris's death was a gift because it really, it really changed how I lived my life and the decisions I made and make like focus on making choices that really made me happy based on rather than what society was pressuring me to do. And I think, I think anytime we're fundamentally re reminded of how precious time is and our, and our time here is, is a really great gift. And I think, I think my cancer scare, I mean, I'm really fortunate that I came out on the, on the positive side of that. Um, it could have easily gone the other way, but yeah, I mean, it was, again, a really great gift that I feel very fortunate to have, to have, you know, to have these reminders. Um, because I think it helps me cut out all the crap and focus on what's, what's more important and what's more meaningful in my life. Um, and that's special, I think. It is. And I think it's rare. And I think, uh, all of us listening today, on March 27th, 2020 can resonate to some degree, not to the severity, but, you know, I think we're all getting a little bit of a reality check here. Yeah. I mean, again, like this, this, you know, yeah, the coronavirus is horrible, but it's a, it's a, it's a humbling, it's a humbling uh, reminder, which, which is a really great thing. And I think it's allowed at least you know, the, the folks that I have spoken with on the phone, the folks that I've had podcasts with, um, everybody's reevaluating, you know. Yeah. 
where yeah, their money goes, where their time goes, where their attention goes. Um, I'm not saying it's good, but, uh, you know, because we're in the thick of it and it's really bad for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think your your wisdom is appreciated, and especially during this time. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's wisdom, but it's just kind of how, it's just kind of my takeaway of it. And I think, I think it's so easy to, I think it's so easy in life to have these experiences define you in a negative way um, when, when you can view them the opposite and they can be such powerful influences in a positive way. Love it. Well, hey, I think we're nearing an hour here. Where can people find you? Where can people reach out to you, see more images, um, maybe have you look at their portfolio and give them some, some feedback? Yeah, for sure. So I, I would say the number one way is probably Instagram. It's Jody Mc, at Jody McDonald photo. Um, and that's MacDonald with M-A-C. Um, and then my website is Jody McDonald photography.com. You have prints and there if you just, as well? <clears throat> yeah, my print store is there as well. Perfect. And then if um, probably the best way, if you want to get in touch, you can either contact me through my website, my email, or just uh, message me through Instagram. And I, I try to respond to as many people as I can. Um, but yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll link those all up in the show notes as well. And uh, Jody, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was, it was a ton of fun. It was great to chat with you again. I haven't talked to you in a while. Yeah, I hope to see you soon. Great. Thanks, Andy. Cheers.